0: We never wake up saying, I wonder how I can mess up my life today. Mm -hmm. Everything that you're in trouble on now, every problem you have started out as a good idea.
1: You're listening to Investing for Good, a show that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design, and impact the world around them. And now, here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, Julie, how's it going? I'm doing really good over here.
2: I'm super excited because. We just canceled our trip to Hawaii for the summer, uh, but not excited about that, but um, excited that we were actually able to find a place here about an hour and a half away from our house up in Sacramento to rent for the summer. So we'll be there for four and a half weeks. And it's like a miniature like Disneyland farm. And it's like two and a half acres on a gated lot there's a huge swimming pool. There's a huge playground with like swings and multiple slides and like a climbing structure. It's all like huge. We could probably camp there because it's nothing but like grass. Um, they have an adult size trampoline. They've got a foosball table, (laughs) ping pong table, like life-size Jenga connect Four. I mean, it just kind of like, you're not even going to be able to find your kids, (laughs) (laughs) but it's great because it's gated. So I can just, and there's like concrete so they can ride their bikes and scooters. And, you know, after oh the gosh. last two months or by the time yeah. we get there, it will be like three months, almost three and a half months of being locked up in our house to be able to like, mm-hmm. let them go free. I'm just so excited about that because like poor kids, I took them out yesterday to the great highway down by my house to, to just roam free. Cause they closed it off and the kids literally their scooter wheels hit the pavement and they just, I mean, I couldn't even call them back (laughs) fast enough because they just took off because the poor things, they have not had that space to just like roam free. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm just super excited about that.
1: (gasps) Yeah. I'm so jealous. That sounds amazing. (laughs) And it's so, you know, you think like, oh, plumber Hawaii, but then you find this gem practically in our backyard. I mean, and you must have gotten a great deal on it, given everything that's going on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think I booked it like just kind of at the right time. So we're really excited (sighs) about that. Now
1: I'm going to have to go look. Yeah. I'm so jealous. (laughs) Well, that brings us to today's conversation um, where we talk about So much, man, we might as well have talked about Disneyland. I know, (laughs) I I know. um, Our conversation today was with um, Paul Moore. And man, I can't even begin to intro him because he's done so much. He tells us the story of how he got started in real estate almost by accident, sort of Mm -hmm. learning about this thing called um, an auction on a courthouse, on the courthouse Mm -hmm. steps. And he decided to sort of just go on a whim. And then he fell into flipping homes and realized that that could be profitable, and started getting into development deals as well, and hotels. And now he does self storage and mobile home parks. He's also done multifamily, mm-hmm. and he's um, he's that guy's everywhere. He's got so much <laughs> wisdom. He's on bigger pockets all the time. He's written books. He's done so mm-hmm. much. And um, man, we like I said, we cover so much in this conversation. Yeah, what was, were some of your your gems or your takeaways yeah, that resonated best? Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I think like one thing that really was super interesting to me was his pre-mortem approach, right, to looking at deals and looking at partners, and he said that you know, in, when they do this, they go, they go forward in time and they're acting like they failed and they're asking what could possibly go wrong and kind of like jumping forward in time and looking backwards and making sure that they kind of, you know, do everything that they can to make sure things don't go wrong, which I think is such a different approach. I I never really thought about. Um, that was one thing. I think another thing, was, you know, when I asked him the question about what's the number one way how to lose money in real estate, because that's the name of his podcast, um, and he had said that the number one thing that he thinks he mentioned a couple others, but the number one thing was a lack of due diligence. And every time I talk with investors, you know, they, they you know, I go back to this again and again, because investors always get so caught up in the numbers on this particular deal. You know, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice because you're just looking at like one grain of sand on the whole beach, you know, and there's so many other things that you really need to take into consideration, particularly as it relates to the operators, you know, and really getting to know who they are um, and what their track record is, what their background is. And he talked about that a, a little bit as well, which I love that he brought up is, you know, trusting the gut feeling. He he talked about, you know, how are they interacting with the investors? How do they treat you? How do they talk to you? And that's something that we use all of the time in, you know, all of our partnerships and people that we work with and you know allow into into our space is really trusting that sense of like, is are these people good-hearted people? And and are these the people who are going to do the right thing? And I feel like that's what has allowed us to have. So so much success and what we do is because we use that as our guiding post and um, I'm just really glad to hear that that he does as well because he's in a, a similar field as, as us in terms of, of how we you know structure our deals and our approach to investing. so
1: so much wisdom shared in this episode to all our listeners you're going to love this one. Here is our conversation with Paul Moore. Paul, how are you?
0: I'm doing great, thanks for having me on the show.
1: Yeah, we're thrilled to talk to you. You have so much experience and knowledge about real estate, so we're really excited to pick your brain. So now, Paul, you've been involved in so many different aspects of real estate investing, from fix and flips to rental properties, development projects, hotels, multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks. I could probably spend the whole show just listing out all of the things that you've done. It's (laughs) dizzying. It's exhausting. (laughs) Well, I know that that doesn't just happen overnight, right? Each of those asset classes and investments takes quite a bit of time and energy to learn about and to get into. So take us back to the beginning of this crazy journey. So how did you get into real estate in the first place? And what were you hoping to achieve at that point?
0: Yeah. So I had sold my company to a publicly traded firm in Detroit in 97 when I was about 33 years old. And I moved to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia and I started a nonprofit organization. It was sort of an international student outreach. And I found myself at like 35, pretty bored, high energy. And the people that were in this volunteer organization I put together were super laid back and they wanted to do a few like retreats per year. And I wanted to do like like several a month. And so I was looking for something to do. And I had heard a rumor from a neighbor that you could buy houses on the courthouse steps for 50 cents on the dollar. So I thought I'd just mosey down there with no money in my pocket intentionally just to see what the auction was like. And they rolled a house out that I'd already comped out at 64,000 for like 32,000 and there was nobody else bidding. So I ran to the bank uh, on an icy day in December and uh, I got a check, cashier's check. I bought the house, flipped it, made a very nice very nice profit on a short time. And I thought I could do one of these a week. <laughs> yeah. So after losing money on two of the next four, I uh, realized it was probably harder than I thought. But at any rate, I just kept, uh, I think that I mixed up investing and in entrepreneurship in the early years. I, you know, I really. I could say more about that later. But I can tell you that uh, as an entrepreneur, I was always looking for the new shiny object. And I became a shiny object chaser, which was not super healthy for the bottom line. In fact, I found myself speculating more than investing. And I found myself chasing the new thing. And like you said, it's really hard to go deep when you jump around a lot like that. And Just kind of jumping to today, I will tell you that when we got into the asset classes we're currently involved in, we took the opposite approach. We actually decided we were not going to be the operator, but we were going to go out and find the very best in class, most experienced operators we could and invest heavily with them. And that's what we've done as a change of strategy to what I did all those earlier years.
1: Mm, That's really interesting. Sounds like now instead of vetting the assets and looking at markets and maybe going on the ground and doing the inspections and rolling up your sleeves and doing the renovations, you are now spending time fostering and creating those partnerships, which as we know, the team is so important. So can you talk to us a little bit about that, how you go out and find these partnerships? It must be hard to find the right partners.
0: It really is. You know, I've been reading Warren Buffett. I'm actually writing a book called Warren Buffett's Rules for Real Estate Investors. And he apparently developed a very long relationship with a guy named Tom Murphy, who he considered the best CEO in America. And um, when Tom called him in 79 and said, I need better part of a billion dollars to acquire ABC, Warren made a decision in 15 minutes because he trusted Tom and because he knew of Tom's track record. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we do. We try, we spend a lot of time on the phone. We've interviewed three operators just this week in three days, trying to find the ones who have the right fit. We have about a 25-point list that we want them to hit the vast majority of um, in due diligence before we'll invest. And then even, even at that point, our goal is to invest a small amount first, see how it goes over the first quarter or two before we really plunge in deeper. So that's how we do it.
2: So how are you guys actually finding these folks? I mean, are you picking up the phone, trying to find who the cold calling trying to find who the operators are? Or what is the strategy that you're using to, to find them?
0: Yeah, so we get recommendations. For example, I know a self storage broker in uh, Char- uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and he knows a lot of the operators and he knows who's looking for money, who's a better operator than they are a capital raiser. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he recommends somebody to me, for example. Other people I'll meet through bigger pockets. One person I actually saw their uh, crowd. Uh, not Crowd Street, but it was—I think it was a realty mogul or something like that—webinar, uh, and I was so impressed with the webinar, I just picked up the phone and called him the next week, and we struck up a great friendship, and he's been a great operator we've invested with for a few years.
1: Hmm, interesting. Wow. Tell us about that 25-point list. I'm curious. I mean, you don't have to go into all 25, but what are some of the ones that are maybe harder for um, people to pass? What are the parts of the gauntlet that people get stuck on?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we do the death by Google thing where we just Google them everywhere we can with every you know, criminal, the word criminal, violation, SEC, et cetera. We do criminal check, background check, reference check talk to current investors. We try to talk to staff. Well, you know, if we really go down the road with them, we'll drop in on their facilities and see how they're really run compared to what they told us they were. Um, we'll see how they treat their employees, how they talk about their investors, their spouse, how they talk to the waiter or waitress. Uh, basically we just, we really, really gauging for that moral capability. You know, it's better to be in a good deal with a fantastic operator than a fantastic deal with a mediocre operator. And so we spent a lot of time. And then we actually, I believe we were created with about, I think it's 3,000 receptors, if you will, I'm using that word loosely, to where we can pick up body language, tone, all kinds of things in our brain that does trillions of calculations per second can actually notice things that we don't know, and I think that translates out to what we typically call a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. And so I used to ignore that. I used to spend a lot, of I worked really hard to override my gut feeling, much to my detriment mm-hmm. for years. Mm-hmm. And every time I did, and every time I didn't listen to my wife, I actually... <laughs> lost money. And so, um, don't tell her I said, yeah, I was no.
2: just going to say, no. we'll no. share this with her. She'll be happy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So no, I learned to, to listen to her and I learned to actually respond to that gut feeling because uh, when I ignored it, I paid dearly.
2: It's so funny that you say that because, you know, we have our coaching program where we teach folks how to raise capital. And that's something that I talked a lot about in the, you know, in the section of the program about how to bet an operator, how to vet a partner. And it sounds so simple, like that's kind of all there is to it, but there's so much in that. And for me as well, that is in the beginning, how, how I gauge all of the potential partnerships and people that we decide to work with is, you know, I think more of like the bottom half of the things that you just mentioned on your list are, you know, just that, that, how are they talking to investors? How are they talking to you? How are they responding to the inquiries and the questions that you have? And are they responsive or are they, are they just ignoring most of the questions and answering only a few or, you know, those things are so important when you think about somebody that you're going to be in a business partnership with for, you know, a long period of time, five to seven years, you know? And so I think that's so great that you bring that up because, I think investors often get really lost in the details, right? They get really lost in the numbers, and you know, and they just get so caught up in that. It's like we really need to take a step back away from that. Really ask ourselves who are, who are these people that we're working with, and you know, really have a good feel for if this is the right partnership and if this is the right person. Because at the end of the day, if it's not, it's going to be a long road ahead. Even if you're making your annual returns and the projections, if you're not feeling comfortable at night, you're not going to be able to sleep at night. And so, I think that's such an important thing for passive investors to um, to think about and keep in mind.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, we never wake up saying, I wonder how I can mess up my life today. Mm -hmm. Everything that you're in trouble on now, every problem you have started out as a good idea. And I think it's really important. We did a post-mortem, no, a pre-mortem today. Mm-hmm. And a pre-mortem is like a post-mortem where you go back in time and say, here's what went wrong. Here were the failure points. Who? Here's who was responsible. A pre-mortem is going forward in time, acting like you failed, and then looking back and say, okay, what were the points of failure? And then you basically say, okay, well, what could go wrong? And then we use that today when we questioned an operator in our approximately seventh call with this operator, we used those questions as we were asking them, you know, what could go wrong from your point of view? So
2: have you guys ever lost a deal or lost investor money or had a deal that went sideways? And if so, how did you handle that?
0: That's a great question. So um, I was so proud of myself that for years from 2000 to uh, the last several years, I didn't lose a dime on any real estate investment. I did a whole bunch of smaller deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what happened, uh, an apartment deal we purchased. And, you know, I don't I want to say this is gut feel, but this was actually a mentor saying, I don't know, a 1962 apartment. Might have some problems with, you know, corroded pipes underground and things like that. And we were already under contract by the time he said that. But I think we should have listened a little more because this was the last asset we acquired. It was a number of years ago, and before we moved to the new model, and it did have lots of problems. It had a one hundred and seven thousand dollar leak in one building alone, and they had nineteen buildings and we were seeing signs that the other buildings might have similar problems on the horizon. And so we actually sold that for a modest loss. We actually gave investors a choice. You know, We said, look, we can continue to plow on and hopefully fix this and turn it around, uh, or we can take a small loss right now. We've got offers coming in because you know the market was so hot. So we went ahead and took that loss. Now, the answer to the way I handled it I did something that is pr- I would not recommend a lot of people do. I think it probably keeps a little bit in line with your podcast mm-hmm. theme. But I told the investors, I said, blame me. Don't blame the inspector. Don't blame the property manager. Don't blame the rest of our team. Just blame me. I was the point person with all you know, 49 investors. I said, here's what I'm going to do. If you want to, and this was really hard. The first time I said it to somebody, I almost cried. <laughs> but uh, I said, if you want to take another chance, I hate to use that word, but if you want to risk it and invest in this other portfolio of deals I have, this portfolio, I will guarantee you, and you know you don't do mm-hmm. that in investing, mm-hmm. but I said, I will personally guarantee you will not only make back what you lost, but you'll make your original projected return of 13% a year over the next decade. If you don't, to the amount you fall short, I will write you a check out of my pocket. And so we had a number of investors take us up on that and they reinvested. In fact, our largest, I think number one and two largest investors reinvested. And um, I'll, I'll, you know, I I don't know how it's going to turn out because, you know, we're years away from the end of that decade, but that's what we did. Mm -hmm. That's what I did at least.
2: Yeah yeah, that's so I mean, that right there, it's always what you want to know because the deal could have looked however it would have looked, right? I mean, on paper when they first saw the deal. But at the end of the day, it's when things go sideways and things go wrong, and how the operator chooses to handle that situation is is what makes what makes it or breaks it. It's not even the deal because, look, at the end of the day, those people still walked away. With a great with a great situation right because of the way you chose to handle it so even though the deal didn't go well because they had a great operator they were still made whole and, and everything was okay. And so that's why when we, when we talk with investors too, we always talk about, you know, make sure you know who we are, uh, you know, who our partners are, make sure you understand all of this and make sure that you're comfortable because at the end of the day, yes, it's important to look at the deal specifics. Of course, you know, you need to do your underwriting and your due diligence there, but you absolutely need to know who you're working with.
1: Uh, Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. And what year was this? Uh,
0: 2017.
1: 2017. Okay. So yeah, the the time is, uh, I guess, just started ticking on that decade. So we'll see um, how that goes. That's um it brings us to an interesting point with everything that's going on now with COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. I know, right? I guess it's a good thing that you sold in 2017, even for a modest loss, because you know, if you had held on, who knows what would have happened at this point. So yeah.
0: um, uh, actually just, I need to correct that. We we acquired okay. it in twenty seventeen. Oh, okay. We actually okay. sold it more recently. So. Oh, okay.
2: Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. What market was that in?
0: Oh, it was Lexington, Kentucky. Okay. So my advice to people who ask me now is, listen to your mentor. The other piece of (laughs) advice was, you know, basically the mentor said, they never acquire anything pre-1978. That's their cutoff. And, you know, I tell you, you all know this too. It's so tempting in a bull market when... we were getting outbid every turn. We were getting, you know, we were seeing $5 million deals go for $7 million. And I don't think those people are going to do well in this next environment here. We can talk about that or not. But, um, you know, we, we finally, if we thought if we're going to compromise on one thing, it'll be the year built. And that's what came back to bite us. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. That's mm-hmm. what we always say to our, so in the beginning, in the early days, we did a few C-class deals and, um, you know, learned our lessons there. And out of the 20 plus properties that we own, I think we have what, like two that are C-class and, you know, you just never know what you're going to find when in those C-class properties, when you start to pull back the, pull back the, um, the walls and you start to do the renovations. And it's really, you know, actually now it's funny because all this time before we used to preach, no A-class, no A-class. And now we're actually looking at, Some you know high B plus A class assets that don't because all the risk is in the renovations right so along with the value add you take you know increases the risk and so now we're looking at a little bit you know more stable properties and and trying to really stay away from you know the heavy value adds or the the repositions that we were doing before.
0: Have you noticed the more uh, experienced investors get the more they trend that way?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true. I don't know i
1: didn't really i never really thought about that is that is that, is that uh, maybe not across the world, yeah but
0: i think so yeah yeah
1: well i think probably as as you get more savvy and you've done more of these investments your capital is growing and now your risk tolerance is probably also right. lower right.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. right because you don't
1: want to lose that money that you've worked so hard to make mm-hmm.
0: that's exactly right perfectly said yeah
1: yeah mm-hmm. So I'm curious to
2: hear your perspective on everything that's happening with COVID-19 and I want to hear from you and understand what your perspective is on the impact of this in the near term and the long term and then the longer term and understand what you think is going to happen in the in the real estate space specifically um, multifamily and then do you you're, you also do self storage right now or is it just yeah. or is it just multifamily both
0: yeah, in nineteen, in Nineteen eighteen. No, no, in two, in twenty eighteen, we looked. <laughs> in nineteen eighteen, there was this last pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. But seriously, um, in twenty eighteen, we started looking outside of multifamily. Even though I'd written a book called "The Perfect Investment," very humble title, um, I actually <laughs> decided we would look outside that because we found out that ninety three percent of multifamily above fifty units was owned by companies that had typically rung the value out of them. And so we also found out that about 75% of self-storage is owned by mom-and-pop operators and small operators who don't know how or don't have the resources or the knowledge or care to get all the value they can. And 90% of the 44,000 mobile home parks in the U.S. are owned by mom-and-pop single-asset owners, and they absolutely leave meat on the bone, profit potential all the time. And so we decided to switch over, broaden our horizons. We still like multifamily, but not overpriced multifamily. And one of the reasons we did that was because for many reasons we probably don't have time to get into, self-storage and mobile home parks are very recession resistant. I can tell you a few mobile home parks are the bottom of the housing ladder, and so if you can't afford a mobile home park rent, which is typically a third of an apartment rent, you probably will end up under a bridge. Mobile home parks also have very sticky tenants. Usually when someone spends five or $8,000 to move a mobile home into the park, they usually never leave. It's the only asset class that has a shrinking supply and an increasing demand every year. 10,000 people a day are turning 65, but 6,000 of them every day don't have more than ten thousand dollars saved for retirement amazing so mobile home parks really work well for a lot of those people who can trade their home equity in for a mobile home park lifestyle and the flexibility that it brings self-storage you know typically when people are doing the four d's they're moving into self-storage and that would be death divorce downsizing and dislocation And that's happening a lot during crises like this. In fact, self-storage occupancy in many well-run self-storage that have, especially those where you don't actually need to meet the manager face-to-face, they're actually growing in occupancy these last few months. Uh, We don't know for sure if that'll be in the medium term, but short-term collections and occupancy in mobile home parks and self-storage has actually been on the rise a little bit. In the medium term, I don't know. I mean, look, we're looking at an unprecedented set of events. We've got a once in a, the last century at least, plague. You've got 10 or 12 times, the, from what I understand, record unemployment. 10 or 12x, what? You've got um, 12,000 retail establishments shutting down in 2019 in one of the best economies in history. What's going to happen now with those? Is it just going to hasten their demise? I don't know. You've got the Fed printing money at record rates. You've got record corporate and all kinds of other debt. And so we've got all these things converging all at one time. And so medium term, you know, it's sort of everybody's guess what's going to happen. Medium to longer term, I think it's going to be a great market to buy distressed debt and distressed assets. I've had meetings three days in a row with uh, investors who know how to buy distressed debt from banks, know how to buy distressed assets from from banks and through other means. And so uh, we're gearing up at Welling's capital to put together a distressed debt or possibly a distressed debt and asset fund. and we think that will be a way where we can actually help people because I mean, It's actually providing, filling a niche. It's not taking advantage of people. I mean, if people lose their assets, you know, we can step in with distress. We can buy the debt at, let's say, 60 cents on the dollar and then go do a workout with the borrower and say, look, we're not going to come in and foreclose in six months when your loan's due. We're going to, you know, extend it. We're going to work with you. We're going to try to help you get back on your feet. And if they won't or don't, you know, we take that over and we have an asset for 50 cents on the dollar. If they do, we still make a nice profit. This is what Howard Marks, one of my investing heroes with Oak Tree Capital, has done very, very well since 1988.
2: When do you see that opportunity coming and how about how long?
0: Studying every chart I can for, um, I have a bigger pocket show on Saturdays. And so I've been talking about this weekly. Every chart I, has have looked at have said that the very bottom in the 2000 so we I think we'd all agree that the worst of the crisis itself, the core crisis in last time around was fall of 2008. The very bottom was hit Q1 of 2012. So I would say three and a quarter years later. But prices were actually the foreclosures actually hit their peak in 2009 and 2010. So a year later. So I think that if we follow anything similar of a pattern like that, uh, we'll see heavy foreclosures in late 2021, and we'll see the bottom pricing by early 2023.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: If it follows the same pattern, which there's Mm -hmm. no guarantee it will, of course.
1: Right. Right. We'll get back to our conversation with Paul in just a minute. back to our chat with Paul Moore. So when you first got into real estate, you had sold your company at 33 and then around 35, you got into flipping and the auction, auctions and um, that kind of thing. So what, what year was that? 2000. 2000, okay, so you sort of, I'm assuming that you sort of built this up, you had the shiny object syndrome, you got into a a bunch of different types of assets. So tell us what happened to your portfolio in 2008. I know it's probably nothing like what's going on now, but give us some insight into um, what your story was and your experience was back then.
0: Yeah, so I'll tell you the short version. If you wanna draw it out, you can. I had a million and a half dollars in my bank account at thirty four uh and exactly ten years later in fall of two thousand and seven, I had two and a half million dollars in debt, and that was all <laughs> against real estate properties. It wasn't a bunch of credit cards and a bunch of failed businesses or anything. it was all real estate related. And I actually, um, it was November 2007, and I got this idea, what would George Mueller do? Now, George Mueller is one of my heroes. He's from Germany. He lived in England, and he actually started orphanages, and he housed housed and cared for 10,000 orphans over his lifetime, which spanned a long time in the 1800s. And he raised what we believe to be a quarter to almost half a billion dollars in today's U.S. dollars. And he did it all without ever asking anybody for a penny. He just had faith and he did the right thing. And so I thought, what would he do? Well, first of all, he wouldn't have any debt. He was squarely against it, so I was already in trouble on that point. But I thought, he would probably do something outrageous, something completely radical, countercultural. So when my friend sat me down around that time and said, okay, you're going to have to declare bankruptcy, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm going to give my way out of debt. (laughs) (laughs) and that went over really well. Uh, Let me tell you. It's the first
1: thing that most people think of. Oh, of course they do.
0: (laughs) And so um, right about that time, my business partner came to me who had about a third of that debt in his name, and he said, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to sign all the debt over to you. (laughs) And so we're still friends today. He still works in one of my companies. But um, at any rate, so I was really stuck going into January 2008. And keep in mind, I did not, none of us knew how bad things were going to get. We assumed in 2007, maybe the worst was over because we can't see the future, right? And so I had no idea we were about to plunge down this black hole. But anyway, we started giving as a family every single week. And the fourth week into this, we had no idea what would happen. Uh, I met a real estate developer who gave me an idea that allowed me to have a light bulb moment this like this creative downloads in a subway restaurant that would allow me to go before the Planning and Zoning Commission and subdivide a waterfront property that was not subdividable by law. And when I presented this to them, they shook their head and they were like, wow, this flies right in the face of our law. We, I, this lady said, I've been doing this job for like 30 years. No one has ever come up with such a crazy proposal. And then she laughed and said, you found a loophole in the law. And so I actually was able to subdivide that land. And in the fall of 2008, I sold four of the five lots off on that waterfront property. And within 13 months, I was 100% debt free and even paid off my home.
1: Oh my gosh. Wow. wow. That's that's incredible. Wait, so, okay, hold on. So through this just sort of chance conversation, um, this guy told you about um, this loophole. So wait, what, what was the loophole? Why, why, couldn't, why didn't anybody else know about this? <laughs>
0: this is very technical. Okay. Uh, he didn't actually, I don't think he even grasped what he said.
1: Oh, I think he okay.
0: thought, he basically said, use the family exemption. Since this is a real estate show, I'll try to explain it, but I'll have to hit it still high level. So he said, use a family exemption. Now the family exemption is in many rural states and it says, like Virginia, it it says that if you have, let's say, a 40 acre farm and you wanna carve out five acres for aging parents or for a child who wants to get their start and they wanna build in the back of the 40 acres, it's not subdividable. You can't subdivide five acres in the middle of a 40-acre parcel unless you have an exemption. It's called the family exemption. Now, that means you basically donate. You carve a piece of your land off and donate it to a family member. The family member has to hold it for five years. And that's what I said to the guy at Subway. I said, no, the, if, if, if they did that, it would take 20 years to cut off five parcels because they have to hold it five before they can cut it again. And then the download I got was, wait a minute, the law, as far as I know, doesn't say anything. What happens to the parent parcel, the forty acres that cuts off five? The five person has to hold it five years. What about the thirty-five that's left? It doesn't say anything. What I did is, these lots, all five lots, were going to sell for around three hundred thousand each. So let's say one point five million to- total. I, I convinced a bank. I had 800,000 in debt on this, by the way, I convinced a bank and a buyer to buy all five acres for 1.5 million. And then he cut off one acre, the best acre, donated that to his wife. Then he immediately sold the other four for 1.2 million. That was the workaround. And then the next buyer bought it for 1.2, donated an acre to his wife, the one they were going to keep, and then sold the other three acres for nine hundred thousand. The next person did the same thing. Nobody had ever thought about the idea that you could, you know, you could immediately sell the parent tract, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was the uh, that was the loophole. Hmm.
2: Huh. That's interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah.
0: I
1: love the the, you know when. It, I think when most people first think about real estate investing, they think, oh, it's about, you know, like spreadsheets and numbers and doing inspections and pipes and things like that. But then you get into these kinds of conversations where you really see the creativity and yeah. sort of the fun side of real estate. And I think that's the part that most people don't get to see. Um, and it's so cool that, I mean, the, it sounds like the person who told you about that didn't Even really understand it himself, but you sort of, because of your experience and your creative thinking, you were sort of able to connect the dots and thread the needle.
0: It's, uh, I mean, I I really do believe it was somehow mysteriously or mystically connected to the fact that we've made this commitment to give, though I can't explain it and I can't tell you that it, it could be replicated. I do believe in karma or the law of sowing and reaping, as I would call it, but. I can't, I don't believe there's a slot machine in the sky where you put in a quarter and you get out a dollar every time. I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. So,
2: yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so much of getting these like downloads from a higher spiritual place is about living life a certain way. And I feel like that's so much of you know, what we, what we do and what we strive to do and what we help try to help other people do and how we try to involve so many other people in our mission for investing for good. And I just feel like so much from when we started our, our company and from, from to where we are now, we've you know, helped so many people and we've also, you know, received so much in return and, and not just monetarily, but, you know, in so many other different ways and in our, you know, Annie and I's relationship and this, uh, you know, what we do in our business. And I just feel like that's such an important reminder to people to, um, you know, remember that it's not always about taking and about me, 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 but, you know, what can we do? And sometimes you know, miracles happen, but don't do it expecting that. But, um, you know, I think it's such a great place to to live. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And and I can tell you to be fully forthright. I can, we continue to give at that level for a number of other years and we had tremendous financial success. But then we had a couple years where we really didn't, and we were just scraping by and things weren't working out well. So again, I don't think it's automatic, but there you go. That's the story.
1: I'm just, I'm curious because, you know, everybody wants to be able to build wealth and give back and When you get to that point, it's not always so easy to just be like, well, I'm going to give to this or I'm going to give to that. I feel like some people have that where they're really connected to a certain cause and some people may not have that. Mm -hmm. So what was your journey like? Did you have something, a a charity, an organization that you were already connected to that you wanted to commit to and give to? Or were you just sort of looking around and trying out different things?
0: Later in the show, I'm going to tell you about what I've come to since then, you know, and and I'm very, very passionate about it now. But at that time, I just had a general sense that we wanted to help the poor. We wanted to help people in third world countries. Mm -hmm. We wanted to donate to our church. And that's where I was at at that time.
1: It must have taken a lot of guts and and courage to have, on the one hand, um, so much debt and sort of be almost stuck. Um, but then on the other hand, to sort of open up your mind, your life to this whole world of giving, I feel like it's such a, it's such a unique counterbalance that I think a lot of people don't really think about or or don't have the courage to try in that situation.
0: Yeah. I mean, I honestly, if I had that much debt and that much interest payments, again, I, I, I think it would be scary. I, I mean, it surely was then. And I, I, for my your wife you know i can't imagine what she was thinking you know so
2: <laughs> so i'm curious um before we switch gears a little bit i just wanted to find out i mean and my guess would be that you are but are you guys buying this year and say for the next 12 months what do you see for for wellings capital on the horizon are you guys buying are you holding off to kind of see what happens what's your approach there
0: we generally so I look at what I would do if I was a residential flipper right now and by the way I would be learning everything I could about subject to deals and lease option sandwiches and I talk about these on my Saturday show and bigger pockets a lot but I'd be gearing up to buy another year maybe a year year and a half from now however however we are op- we are investing heavily with an operator who has a really, Unique acquisition process, and he's so good at sniffing out these off-market mom-and-pop deals that have a ama- amazing amount of upside potential, latent potential, if you will. That we are still investing heavily with them. In fact, we invested six and a half million dollars last month with them, and we really we plan to continue to invest heavily. The reason is. He is able to, I mean, a very quick example, he uh, called on a self-storage, no, I'll, I'll use a different one, a mobile home park in Louisville, and he offered him $7 million, they agreed at 7.1. The owner-operator had not visited the park in five years, yet it had 200 and, no, I think it was 311 spots, so it was a large park. And so he bought bought it for seven point one million. Put out a press release on February twenty first, and on February twenty seventh, six days later, got an offer for nine and a half million. And the uh, the person making the offer, you know, to buy this, said, "How did you buy this for seven point one million? We offered them nine." And he said, "Well, I, I'm just really, <laughs> he was really really good at just you know basically." being very relational with the seller, knowing how to talk to a mom and pop owner, you know, who's an older lady who, whose husband had left the park to her. And he, he said no, flatly no, because he said with three simple value add tweaks, we can have this park worth 12 to 14 million. Now that's two and a half X on the equity. I mean, it's, you know, almost, almost double the value, but two and a half X counting leverage. On the equity, when you get deals like that, I think I feel pretty comfortable uh, investing during this time. And we've invested in 21 deals with that operator so far this year, and most of them are pretty similar to what I just explained.
2: Interesting. And and when you do when you do your underwriting. How are you, how are you doing that with everything that's going on? Like, what are, how are you adjusting your underwriting and for everything? For COVID-19, all of the uncertainty. I mean, I, it's... It's an impossible task, it almost seems like. So what is your advice for people who are looking at these deals and looking at, say, your fund? How do they approach it and how do they know it's a good bet?
0: Yeah, I I would say, you know, where people used to say, assume increasing occupancy, increasing rents every year. Just assume at best your occupancy will be dropping a little and your rents will be dropping a little at best. And then model it and see what happens if your occupancy drops an additional ten percent and your rents drop an additional ten or fifteen percent, and see, and then and then get your leverage down to where you'd still be fine if that happened. Our average leverage uh, loan to current value—I didn't say loan to cost, loan to current value—across uh, our portfolios probably in the forties. So, and that's what we feel a lot more comfortable are. Uh, our um, debt service coverage ratio, which you're familiar with, but for listeners, that's basically the margin of safety of your net operating income compared to your debt payments. You know, the banks want to see a 25 to 30% or higher margin of safety. Ours is 133%, meaning our debt service coverage ratio is 2.33 right now.
2: And can you explain to people what the difference is between the loan of cost versus loan of value and why that matters?
0: Yeah, sure. So if we get a mobile home park like that, where we, let's just say that one was acquired for cash, but then we put debt on it of 60%. So 60% of 7.1 million is roughly 4.25 million. Now that is a loan to cost 60%. But if we make those three tweaks in a year from now, the value of that parks up to 10 million the loan to value is now only 42% rather than 60 and then if we get it to where it's worth 12 million the loan to value might only be down in the 34% range
2: yeah that is really low really yeah. low i mean when you think about the potential risk to you know to that i mean it's it's so little because there's so much equity in there So that's great. What is the average hold time for the, like if someone invests in the fund? like what's the average hold time for their money?
0: So we wanna provide diversification across asset types, operators, geography, of course the assets, but also across strategy. And across strategy means that we're, we have some hold times, which we have some operators who wanna hold forever. And we, we have one that's had, that has self storage assets since 1981, literally in Detroit. But then we have other operators like the one I'm talking most about on this show, uh, who has an average hold time of three and a quarter years. They spend the first year making the changes, fixing what's wrong, and then improving what's needed. They spend the second year increasing income and occupancy, and then third year marketing it to sell at this increased value.
2: Very interesting. Okay, well, I did have one last question I want to ask you because of your the name of your podcast. I think it's super interesting. And I know that, um, you know, there's probably a lot of people that would love to know why you created it. But I just want to ask one question. What is the number way to lose money in real estate?
0: Well, you know, we were trying to write a book called how to lose money and we, we couldn't come up with just one. (laughs) Um, I think that the, the, the number one way I would say though, um, uh, of a couple would be lack of due diligence. Um, Just, you know, basically not following your gut confirmation bias. You know, you'd get on a track where you want to buy something. I mean, we literally, when we were trying to buy that older apartment complex, we literally started saying, well, wait a minute, New York city has hundred year old apartments and they're fine. What's wrong with a 50 year old apartment? You know what I mean? So yeah, confirmation bias, which is overlooking what disagrees with what you want emotionally Yeah. Lack of due diligence. You know, it's a funny thing on our show. So it's a wealth building show where we explore why, you know, how to lose money so you can learn not to is the right show. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: We found one really funny thing. We had Jay Massey on and, um, we, we, we've learned a lot of people say, you've got to quit early. You've got to know that you're on the wrong path, pull the plug and move on. And then we have other people who have the exact opposite experience. They would say, you never quit early. You always have to persevere. And that's how we made all this money. And so it was funny. I was like scratching my head. Now, which is it? And, the, you know, the answer, it's very situation dependent. And that comes with wisdom. That's why it's easier for a 50-some or 60-something-year-old to make that decision right than it is for a 20-something. Because I, may, I was wrong on that Peace many times in the past. And I think I would make a better decision now.
2: <laughs> yeah, I could not agree with you more. That's like, there's like this uh, extra intuition that you have, the older you get every, every year that goes by, it adds another little drop in the bucket to that intuition bucket. I love that. All right. I am ready. Are you guys ready? Let's move into the investing for good impact round. So we're going to ask you a couple of questions around investing in yourself, others and the world. So the first question is around investing in yourself. So what is one way that your investments are helping to make the world a
0: better place? So what's one way the, my investments are helping the world make, be a better place? So um, Oh, sorry. In,
2: it is may, allowing you to live a better life.
0: <laughs> allowing me to, be able to live a better life. So you know, when I really thought I had to do it all, when I thought I had to be an acquirer, raise capital, be an operator, asset manager, property manager, I had read the Gary Keller's book, The One Thing, and realized I needed to dial in my focus on one thing. And for me, that was raising capital. And it's made my life a lot better to just be able to create content, talk to uh, investors, and then choose great operators rather than all the other minutiae of being an operator. So that's how my life's better.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, that was the same for for me in the very early days. I got into this business thinking I was going to do it all me by myself (laughs) that i was going to go out there uh you know create the broker relationships underwrite the deals raise the money asset manage and it was so daunting and so overwhelming and um you know here we are uh you know and we have our niche and we have our focus and um you know it's allowed us to have success so i love that okay second question is around investing in others so what is one investment strategy or hack that you might be able to share with the listeners that would help them? catapult their investing journey farther, faster?
0: Yeah, this is hard to explain, but I think there's a confusion in a lot of people's minds, um, confusing entrepreneurship and investing. And here's what I mean. As an entrepreneur, I want to be like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, or, you know, I want to be somebody who creates a whole new thing and takes risks. As an investor, I found that that was a good path to failure because you know there's a difference between investing and speculating you can speculate as an entrepreneur but as an investor when you speculate it means that your principal is completely at risk and you might make a return when you invest though your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return and so i would leave people with this thought that it's better over the long run to be an investor than a speculator when it comes to investing your money mm,
2: yeah yeah i love that We're, i talk about that all the time on my calls with investors speculation game is no fun to play because when you lose <laughs> you can lose big so uh right yeah i love that okay last question which was the one i accidentally asked in the beginning is investing in the world so what is one way your investments are helping to make the world a better place
0: I don't know what you know about this, but about four years ago, I watched a movie called Nefarious, and Nefarious is put out by Exodus Cry, and the movie talks about human trafficking. Did you know that if you took the, not average, the record profits generated by Apple, Nike, Starbucks and General Motors took their record profits, added them together, double that number. That's the approximate revenue generated every year by human trafficking. No. I'd like to believe it is. I'd like to believe that if I was alive in the 1800s, I would have been an abolitionist fighting against slavery in America or England. And if I would have been an adult in the 1960s, you might think I was, uh, I would have been actually fighting for civil rights. Well, this is a civil right. It is slavery. And I'm trying to raise awareness for that. So we're giving a portion of our profits to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims. And we're trying to do everything we can to raise awareness of this absolute horror that's happening right under our noses.
2: Yeah, I don't. You know, it's I don't know too much about about human trafficking, but when when I do hear about it, it it's just ter- it's so sad. It's terrifying. It scares me because I have three young children, and to think about you know how these sometimes kids are going through this this system, it's so so terrifying to think about. Um, is there a specific um, charity or company that you work with? Or
0: yeah, so I really like Exodus Cry. They're at Exodus Cry. E X O D U S C R and They put out a lot of education. Uh, their founder uh, testified before the UN a couple of years ago. Uh, they put out films. The film *Nefarious* is a great starting point. I talked to their founder, and he said it was very hard to watch. He said, "Oh, that's only PG compared to the other movies I'm making oh my God. that are going to be like R." Oh. And so he's got two other movies out since then. But um, yeah, I would recommend you people start there. There's also, you know, IJM, International Justice Mission, I think it is, and some other organizations. I, I also donate to like a farm that's sort of low key. They're not, you know, not super public. People can ask me about it. That houses a lot of victims, but they don't want, you know, the traffickers showing up on right, their doorstep, right, which right. actually happened once. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Wow.
1: Yeah. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around that. I was, I, I, I saw a documentary, I think it was with the um, the founder of Operation Underground Railroad, and he was talking oh, yeah. about um, how You know when he talks about human trafficking, people turn away. Mm -hmm. It's so ugly, and it's so hard to deal with. That's part of the reason why it's been able to go on so long and grow as big as it has is because people just—it's too hard for people to grapple with. And so it—I'm—it's amazing what you're doing, and how you're giving back through all that you've built and all that you're you're doing so um we applaud you for that and we hope to join you in that journey well paul thank you so much for your time tell us how um our listeners can i know you're all over the place you're on bigger pockets you've got your podcast what's the best place for people to go to connect with you possibly learn more about wellings capital and all that you're doing
0: yeah so So we have a new podcast called The Art of Investing. It's not out yet, but we'd love to have you as guests. But the best way to reach me is at my website, wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-M-G-S, capital.com.
1: Great. Well, we will have that in the show notes along with the link to Exodus Cry as well. Paul Moore, managing partner at Wellings Capital and co-host of the podcast, How to Lose Money, and the new podcast, The Art of Investing. Thank you so much for being here with us, Paul.
0: Thank you. It was an honor.
1: You've been listening to Investing for Good, the number one podcast for people like you who are investing to build a legacy for their families, create a meaningful and intentional life by design and impact the world around them. For more resources, check out goodeginvestments.com slash podcast and be sure to join the Investing for Good Facebook community. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations every week. Until next time, keep investing for good.